Well, Christmas has always been one of my favorite times of the year. I just love it. And I didn't, as a kid, appreciate the anticipation leading up to Christmas, but now I do. You know, as a kid, it was miserable. Every day that wasn't Christmas was awful. It felt like birthdays and Christmas rolled around with a just agonizing slowness. But now I kind of appreciate it because, and probably just because I feel like as I get older, and everybody says this, time just goes so much faster, and I feel like we just got done with Christmas last year, and so anything that can kind of lengthen it out makes it better to me. And so I appreciate all the things that lead up to Christmas. I like the decorating, putting up the tree. I like the cookie baking, hot chocolates, the candy canes. I like putting the lights on on houses. We were going to decorate. I was going to put our lights up this year. I, I spent extra money last year buying some new lights for our house. I uh, bought LEDs because, you know, they last forever, and I, I bought these three really long strands. That was, that's all it took to get across the front of our house. I get them out the other day, and I'm plugging them in just to test them, just because you're supposed to, but I'm like, I know they work, except one of them didn't. I was so frustrated, and so it's like, well, I can't have two-thirds of my house lit, so I just chucked it and figured there'd be another day, you know, but I love that. All the stuff that leads up to Christmas. And, uh, you know, though, but when I was younger, when I was a kid, I don't think I had a proper understanding of Christmas. Um, the main thing I thought about at Christmas time was me. I thought about what presents am I going to get? What's Santa going to bring me? That's, I mean, it was basically a very me-focused thing. And, you know, that's, I don't think that's terrible. I mean, how can kids resist that when they got a tree or a bunch of presents piled under the tree, you know, and they know that when they go to different grandparents' there's going to be more of that kind of stuff, right? But, but like, I mean, I would go in there, I'd shake every present, I'd, you know, see if there's any loose tape that you could kind of pick up without getting caught. I'd guesstimate, try to see if the, the presents that I liked in the commercials would fit in the boxes that were under my tree to try to see maybe that's what mom and dad got me. I did all of that, uh, and and. And again, my, my main focus was me, um, not a lot of Jesus-focused stuff, you know. And it wasn't that I didn't think about other people. I was just way more concerned about my presence than what I was going to buy for other people. Uh, when I did school assignments, it was, I, you had to draw something Christmassy, do some kind of Christmas-related artwork. You know, I'd draw Santa, reindeer, probably because they were the ones bringing the presents, you know. That's, but that was, it was that kind of Christmassy stuff, not a lot of Jesus-y stuff. And it wasn't that I didn't know the story of Christmas, um, I knew it was about Jesus being born. I mean, in fact, um, every single year under our Christmas tree, we had a very, uh, uh, like a wooden, little wooden barn with, for whatever reason, the most breakable set of figurines for the manger. That poor angel lost her wings every year. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, me and my brother used to wrestle, and then you try to, like, glue the wings back on, you know, if, you, if somebody kicked it before mom finds out. And before long, you know, the two pieces of her, her wing and her body are getting slowly farther and farther apart from the mountains of glue that you add on every year. And uh, I don't even know what happened to that original angel because she's long gone. We have a different, so like all the pieces look the same except the angel. Uh, sorry, mom. Uh, but yeah, but you know, so I knew that that was part of the story, right? But I didn't focus on that because right next to that manger was all my presents. So I couldn't really see Jesus for myself. I got in the way. And then later on in life, when I became a Christian, 
I started to realize that Christmas wasn't about all those things that I thought Christmas was about. And I started to kind of focus a little bit more on the manger and understanding the point of why Jesus came. And, and um, like I mentioned a minute ago in the communion thought, connecting the, the, the manger with the cross and understanding the, the beauty of, of why he came. But it took me a while. Because I kind of had this weird in-between time where it was like the things that I used to find meaning in Christmas, or the things that I used to put the meaning of Christmas in, they had kind of lost their allure a little bit. But I I didn't understand the complexities and and the fullness of why Jesus came for me enough to see the beauty of, of Christmas. I just didn't always connect those dots so well. But the more I've I've grown in my faith and the more I've understood why Jesus came the beauty of the, the mission of God and, and, the, and the way that he came in a small, innocent, helpless little baby, the more I see the beauty of Christmas. And it becomes more beautiful each and every year. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've kind of uh, been starting off each message with a, an ancient prophecy that was written 700 years before Jesus was even born, which is a long time. Like, that's a really impressive thing that somebody was able to predict how he would come as a small child, that he would be born like everybody else. But it also predicts the kind of Savior that he would be. So in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So he spells out that Jesus was God, and then he gives us exactly what Jesus would be like with these four titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, We talked about the first two uh, in the last two weeks. Today we're going to talk about Everlasting Father, and then on Christmas Eve, at the Christmas Eve service, we're going to talk about Prince of Peace. And to say that this coming Savior would be the Everlasting Father, that says a whole lot in just two words. Um, First, the word everlasting means forever. I mean, that just means what it is, right? And, and we use the word forever not literally most of the time because we don't understand what forever means. And so we'll say love that lasts forever. Um, you know, it's, things have a lifetime warranty. You know, we can, we'll talk about, um, you know, you, get, you can buy products. Like, this one won't break like your last one. This one will last you forever. But forever is millions billions of years, that doesn't even contribute to forever. That's a small bit of forever. And to call him the everlasting father is to say that he is the God, the creator of the universe, who has no beginning and no end. The word everlasting is used many times in the Old Testament to describe God. One of them is to describe his eternal nature, that he, he was not born, he did not arrive, he has always existed beyond the boundaries of time. Another way um, the everlasting is used to describe God is to describe his victories. This is the one I think is one of the most cool uh, ways to describe God, because it says that his victories are everlasting. Um, think about how things work in our world. Uh, there can be a country that gets aggressive, starts a war, gets beat, Right, And they go home licking their wounds. You give them a few decades, they build up power, they can come back and start another war. Right, But this says, when it says that God's victories are everlasting, it means when he defeats an enemy, they're done. They don't get off the mat. 
Like there's no like count to five and then they get back up stumbling ready for another round. No, when, when God defeats an enemy, they're done. There is no round two. It's over. Um, another way that it describes the everlasting nature of God is that his love is everlasting. That his love for you and me, it knows no boundaries, that it does not stop. It also describes his salvation as everlasting. That when we give our hearts to Christ, when we, when we ultimately meet our end of this life and we move on to the next, once we have that salvation secured, there is nothing that will take it away, challenge it, or diminish it over time. It will be everlasting to everlasting. But to call him a father, it also draws aspects. That's also another way to say that Jesus is going to be God in flesh. But to call him a father draws to a very specific aspect of God, and that is his relationship to his people, his relationship to you and me, that he is our father. Now, Unfortunately, the picture that we get of, of a father, the definition, our understanding of father is first given to us by our earthly fathers, whether that's good or whether that's bad. For some people, when you hear the word father, you think love, warmth, kindness, guidance. But for some people, when they hear the word father, they think neglect, abuse, abandonment, frustration, loss, loneliness. Some people feel uh, a sense of insufficiency because they grew up with a dad who was a taskmaster, who was never satisfied. If you did it perfection, it wasn't perfect enough. If you won a race, well, you could have run faster. And, you know, all that stuff. There was always something more, a dad who was never satisfied. And some people grew up with that. And so whether we had a great image of a father or a bad picture of a father, one of the scariest things about being a father is realizing that your kids are going to kind of get their first idea, maybe of God, from how you act and how you treat them. And like I said, for you know, a lot of us, that, that can be good. You had a good dad. I had a good dad. If you had um, a good father, well, the thing we've got to understand then is that, that we can't let any picture of a father define God's parenthood for us. Every earthly father, no matter how good they are, will fall short of, of giving us an accurate idea of the goodness of our heavenly father. And if you had a bad father growing up, or maybe no father growing up, then the, the Bible says that God wants to come along and give you an accurate view of what it means to be a father. He doesn't want to let that bad earthly human's experience with you taint your idea of what it means to be have a good father. Um, in Psalm 68, verse 5, it calls him, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Meaning God wants to come along and show people a fatherly love, even if they've never known it in their life. And so as we talk about how Jesus fits this view of, of being our heavenly father, our everlasting father, we, we've got to be careful not to let our picture of an earthly father hold us back, but rather we've got to let, look at God and let him define fatherhood for us and what it means to be a good father. But I will say, few things have opened my eyes to what God's love for me must be like, like when I became a father. That, that rattled my life, to, I mean, in more ways than one. I mean, I don't think I've slept a full night since, um, unless they were sleeping at somebody else's house. 
Um, and if I have slept the whole night, it was because Abby was doing all the legwork, getting up with every kid, and then I felt bad about it. So there's no guilt-free night's sleep, I don't think, once you have kids. But, but one thing it just totally did was it just revolutionized the way that I thought of God's love for me. Um, because, you know, early on <clears throat> in my life, uh, I would say that every relationship I had, I could theoretically, if, I, if you asked me to think of, could this relationship end? I would say, well, I guess so. I mean, I've seen people have falling outs with their parents, and I love my parents, and I didn't see that happening, but I mean, I guess theoretically that could happen. Um, you know, I, in high school and college, I dated girls, and you know, I was so in love and thought we were going to get married, and that, that didn't work out all the time, uh, most of the time, right? So I could see those kinds of relationships ending and, and all of that. But when I had a kid, when I had three kids, suddenly I am confronted with a relationship where I can't see anything that would make me stop loving them. I can't, I mean, I can't think of any behavior, any action. I can't think of anything they could say to me in anger, rage, or hatred. There's nothing I can imagine them doing that would make me stop loving them. And I never had that, that inability to, to just even hypothetically come up with that before. And, and then there was this one day after, you know, your baby's born and you're holding them and you're like, I can't imagine how I've loved this person I just met. I didn't, you weren't here yesterday and now you're here and I love you and I, I don't, my, like, like the Grinch, my heart grew like two sizes to make room for you or is it three, whatever. Um, but anyway, I just, it was just amazing how much love fills your heart when you're looking at this little child. And then I don't know how long it was after having James that I was just like, wait a minute, is that how God loves me? Because I'd always kind of lived in this reality that I thought God's love for me was based on what I did, how I performed. And so on seasons when I was doing really well and I felt like I was trying to be really faithful and I was trying to be good to people and I was trying to serve at church and I was trying to be generous with my, my income and I was, you know, I was reading my Bible regularly and I was praying. And on those times I was like, okay, whew, I could relax because God's probably pretty happy with me because I'm doing all the things, checking all the boxes. But then inevitably, I'd have seasons where I'd get angry and I'd say stuff to somebody that I didn't, you know, I shouldn't have said, probably didn't even fully mean, but I'd say it. I did, I'd have moments where I wouldn't give as generously, where I'd cross lines of sin that I knew not to cross. I'd have times where I'd stop reading the Bible much and praying much. And, and then in those moments, I would get filled with guilt and shame and even fear towards God because I thought, okay, God, God doesn't like me right now, probably let alone even love me because I'm such a horrible person who's done so many bad things. And, and I hope I don't die today because if I die today, I'm sure he'd send me straight to hell for being such a bad person these last few days, weeks, or months, or whatever the season was. But when I had a kid, finally it was like, wait a minute. There can be a love that is completely separated from how someone treats me. I can love them regardless of anything they do. That no matter how much they cry, how much bad things they do, how many toys they throw, how many things they break, how many nights sleep they rob of me, no matter what they do, I can't stop loving them. I won't stop loving them. And then when I realize that when I, when I call God my heavenly father, that that's the love he has for me, that just totally changed the way I viewed God. And like I said, for the so many seasons of my life, for what felt like a long, long, long time, I just thought God liked me when I was likable. But that isn't the case at all because he's my heavenly father. 
And a father's love, a good father's love, isn't based on performance. A good father just loves his kids, and he loves me, and he loves you with this unending, uncompromising, unstoppable love. And it took having kids for me to, I think, fully realize that. And what's interesting is, you know, before I had kids, I had gone to Bible college. I, had, I was a minister. I had preached a lot of sermons before I ever had kids. And so I knew it here, but I doubted it here. And it took a lot of years for that information to go, what, eight inches maybe? It, it was crazy, and it took holding a small child to do that. But it finally like, totally like, just changed the way that I viewed everything. And, and ever since, and I've been able to go back to Scripture and look at those passages that talk about his love, his unending love, his everlasting love for me and for us, and read those verses afresh and have my, my soul just filled with joy and gratitude, understanding his love, sometimes it just felt like for the first time all over again. And to kind of help flesh this out, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, it kind of paints this picture. It says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, meaning we all used to just do not what God wanted us to do, we did what we wanted to do. We didn't walk towards God, but we did our thing, which is most of the time the wrong thing. Looking back on my life, he says, and we were by nature children of wrath, meaning we were on the receiving end of God's wrath because we, had, we, we were still on the hook for our sin. We had not received the punishment or the, the salvation of Jesus. So we were on the hook for our sin like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses or our sins, meaning in, while we were bad, while we were at our worst, while we were at the deepest pit of our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. So through Jesus, we have salvation because of God's great love that reaches out to us even while we're still a mess. And because of his love for us, like I said, he provides a way. He chose to leave heaven, to be born as this tiny helpless baby, as Jesus, and to be a sacrifice so that we could be made new. And, you know, there are times, like I said, when my kids break stuff and um, make me mad, make me frustrated, exhaust me. Sometimes, they, I don't, no one tells you this before you have a kid. They, every kid, will, they break stuff you love. They break stuff, you, like, things that you cared about. And you see where your hearts are in the wrong place by the, the, way, the things that they, they destroy. And Jude, who's our middle child, he's very perceptive. There's times where he, you know, will be doing something and, He'll ask to, for some help on something, and I'll be saying, hold on a minute, I'm finishing this game on my phone or something useless. And he's like, Dad, what's more important, me or that game on your phone? I mean, expert guilt tripper, that one. I don't know where he gets it, but it's real good. Um, but that, that idea that like, even in those moments when, when they fail, when they do less than what I want them to do, my love for them is just as strong as it ever was, and to realize that that's the love that causes God to send Jesus into the world to save me. And so his love for us does not stop regardless of how well we behave. Later on in Isaiah, um, verse, or chapter 54, it kind of gives us another idea of how endless God's love is for us. It says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Basically, the earth will crumble to pieces before God's love stops for you. And so because of this great love, we have forgiveness, which allows us to, 
to approach God and have this relationship with him and actually call him our father. One thing we don't always understand is, is how divisive sin is. Sin is a wrecking ball of, human, of the human experience. It messes up our relationships with each other. It messes up our relationship to the world and creation. And it messes up our relationship with God. And the way sin works with our, our relationship with God is it, it breaks that, that relationship by building kind of this wall of separation between us and God. You see, God is holy, perfect, which means he can't be in contact with anything evil or sinful. And so when we choose sin, we are creating a barrier between us and our Heavenly Father. But when Jesus comes in and saves us, his salvation removes that wall so that we can have this amazing, intimate access with our Heavenly Father. And, and this access with him allows us to have life change. It allows us to be transformed from the inside out. And ultimately, it allows us to have this eternity, this eternal hope in heaven that we don't even a little teeny tiny bit deserve. And you know, that's the part that I think kept me hung up thinking God doesn't like me when I'm bad. Because I, I just felt the weight of being undeserving of salvation. And... and I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile my lack of deserving salvation, deserving hope. I couldn't make that fit with his love for me and his salvation that he offered me. Um, you know, in, in early 2019, something that a lot of people think is terrible happened. Um, the Patriots won a, another Super Bowl. And if you don't like the Patriots, don't let that hurt the way you see this story. Um, but it was Tom Brady's sixth Super Bowl win. And, um, you know, when the game is over, it's this way with every Super Bowl. And, you know, whatever. Uh, you have people just, like, rush the field. I mean, everybody and their mama tries to rush the field. I don't know how many fans actually accidentally make it on the field. Um, you'd think there'd be security, but there's just so many people. Hundreds, thousands of people are rushing the field. And most of the people, I would say, though, deserve to be there. Most of the people probably can contributed somehow. Um, you know, the players are there, you got coaches, you got trainers. I mean, who knows, a hot dog vendor might have got out there. Uh, you might have a, a, one of the corporate guys who, you know, filled out the paperwork. He kind of did some work. To, he kept the whole thing running, so he might run out there and celebrate, right? Um, but there are people that make it onto the field who do not deserve to be there. Uh, for instance, when, uh, after the win, uh, Tom Brady's family came out there. And they came, and they rushed up to him, you know. And he's like the middle of the action. Like, there's the cameras, the microphones. Everybody's wanting to, like, get a piece of Tom Brady in that moment. And his family comes in, and he kisses his wife, and his kids are all hugging him and cheering for him. And during one of the, the post-game interviews, he picked up his daughter, Vivian, who was six years old at the time. And nobody was having more fun that day than Vivian. I mean, that girl was having the time of her life. And here she is in the middle of this action, and she's screaming, and she's like high-fiving these famous football players that any New England fan, I mean, they would have killed. They would have sold kidneys to meet these people, right? And she's just high-fiving them. Hey, Gronk, are you happy? This is great, isn't it? And there's confetti. And, and what was funny was after this game, I started, you started seeing articles about Vivian, how she was the star of the Super Bowl. How she stole the show. How the unsung hero of Super Bowl 53 was Vivian Brady. And I thought that was so cool. Because you know what she did? Nothing. She didn't throw a pass. She didn't score a touchdown. She didn't kick a field goal. She did nothing. The only reason she was able to make it on that field and have access to this really prestigious group of, of people, this really prestigious moment, was because of her relationship 
with her father. That was what granted her access. It wasn't anything she did. It was simply because her dad loved her and he opened his arms to her and everybody got out the way because her dad was kind of in charge, sort of, and he let her come to him. And it's just amazing how we can so easily watch a story like that and be enamored with this beautiful relationship between a father and his child and we can miss that same level of love and intimacy when we consider our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And yet that relationship, that love that He has for us and the access that we have to Him is so much more important, so much stronger than anything we will see mirrored in our earthly world. And so, yes, our mistakes, our sins should keep us locked off from Him forever, should keep us out of heaven forever. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be in heaven. But yet by His grace and His immense love for us, He opens His arms and lets us come to him because Jesus was willing to walk a lifetime in our shoes and sacrifice himself in our place. And because of that, we can have confidence. We can go to God with confidence even when we're bad. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says this. It says, let us then, because Jesus saved us, because we have this amazing forgiveness in Jesus, it says, let us then with confidence draw, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. And so when we as Christians find, accept the forgiveness of Jesus, we can go with confidence to our Heavenly Father. We can pray. Because, you know, when, like I said, when I you know, had seasons when I would uh, you know, do things I knew were wrong, I would steer clear of God. I would be, feel ashamed. And, and, you know, after I'd known I'd done some things wrong, I kind of, you know, held my head down. I didn't want to look up to pray. I didn't want to read my Bible. It almost felt like to do those things was to have to fess up to my parents. You know, it's like going home after you wreck the car. Dad, I know I did something dumb. I was driving too fast. It just felt like that. There was something in me, that fear of going to God in my sin. But yet this says that when we have salvation in Jesus, even when we do things wrong, we can go straight to him and just say, I'm so sorry. I should never have done that. Please help me to not do that again. Forgive me, Father. And he receives us into his presence. We don't have to approach him with with fear and, and anxiety and shame. He takes that away with Jesus on the cross. And so even today, our Heavenly Father's arms are outstretched asking us to draw near to Him. And I think we could all stand to draw a little more near to Him. I mean, if you're feeling deflated and discouraged, He wants to help you. He wants to give you encouragement. If you're feeling overwhelmed and anxious, He wants to carry your burdens. If you're feeling guilty, He wants to free you from that guilt and bring you the freedom of living on the road that he's laid out for you, a life of purpose and meaning. And so maybe you're in the room today, maybe you're, you're watching online and you've had times when you thought that you have worn out your welcome with God, that there is no way he will ever want anything to do with you, that he probably doesn't even care about you, he doesn't even like you because of the things that you've done. But let me assure you, there is nothing you have done to, to blow your chance with God's love. He loves you with an unstoppable love. And, and if you think, you know, there's no way God would ever give me a chance, you are dead wrong. Your Heavenly Father loves you, and He wants to be with you. That's why we use this term, and that's why the ancient Israelites were consistently using this term, Father. In fact, the Hebrew word, you, if you're a Christian, you've probably heard this, is Abba, which is more akin to saying Daddy. It's a real intimate term. But for some reason, I, if you ever hear somebody pray, Daddy God, I don't, that sounds real weird. 
And I, I, so I still say father. I can't, get, I can't get on board with daddy God just yet. But, but, um, um, but, but that's, the, that's the idea behind the word Abba. You're my, you're my dad. You're my father. And there's this close relationship that I can have with you. And so, yes, we've all failed. Yes, we've made our mistakes. And yet, guess what? We're probably not done failing or making mistakes. But just like my kids aren't done failing or making mistakes, it's not going to make one bit of difference on how much I love them. You're, the, how you live the rest of your life will not make one difference on how much God loves you. He just wants to receive you back and to lead you past your sin, to transform you into something better and have a relationship with you forever. So we must make an effort. We can't, we can't let sin, shame, embarrassment, whatever, keep us from drawing near to our Heavenly Father. His arms are outstretched, and he's calling us to come to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so, so humbled by the love you have for us. It doesn't make sense most of the time. It's, it's hard for us to even see. We, we, we feel the weight in the, of our shame and our sin often. And to, to come to you and say that you would still love us with all of our brokenness, with all of our imperfections, it, it takes a long time for a lot of us to digest that and absorb that. And I just pray that, that you would allow us to, to understand the absolute size of your grace and mercy towards us, the love that you have for your children, that, that yes, we can make you angry with our sin, we can disappoint you with our sin, we can hurt you with our sin, but that never changes, that never t- turns off your love for us. But your perfect love pursues us even into the darkest depths of our sin. You are never farther from us in our, in our deepest regrets than you are in our proudest accomplishments. And so I pray, Father, that we would turn to you each and every day, that we would open our hearts and, and, and pour out our hearts to you in prayer, that we would open your word to learn more about you, and that you would reveal yourself to us through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit living in us, those of us who are believers. And I pray, Father, that, that for anyone who's, who's here today or watching online who has ever felt guilt, shame, as, as something that has kept them away from you, as they felt that they've, done, uh, they've worn out their welcome with you and that there's no way you would ever want anything to do with them, I pray that you would allow their hearts to open to the realization that you love them and you want them to come to you and receive salvation through Christ so that they might have a full life with you. And I just pray, Father, that as we come here today and as we kind of uh, wrap up our service and we sing a, another song and we we pray another prayer here in just a little bit. I just pray that, that we would spend a little bit of time just being in awe of the absolute love you have for us as our heavenly Father. What a joy to be considered your children. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.